Chapter 7 of The Planet Mappers. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Planet Mappers by Edward Everett Evans. Chapter 7. At Jack's question, John started. Haven't looked yet. Let's go see. The two raced into the living room and into their parents' bunk room. Mrs. Carver was just opening her eyes, and seeing the boy's anxious looks, struggled to sit up. They helped her, and Jack turned quickly to look at his father. To his relief, the latter's pulse was no weaker, and his breathing was regular. We got through all safely, John assured his mother, and she threw her arms about him and broke into tears. Hey, no need of crying now. It's all over. I know. She reached down for a corner of her apron and wiped her eyes. Just relief, I guess. Is Mr. C. all right? She asked Jack. Didn't seem to hurt him a bit. Indeed, just then there was a mutter from Mr. Carver's lips, and his eyelids fluttered open. The three gathered closely beside him, and were tremendously heartened by the look of sane awareness in his eyes. Hello, as though surprised to find himself in bed and the others gathered about him. Did I oversleep? Jack reached out and took his father's hand. No, father. You've been a little ill and unconscious, that's all. But you're almost well now. A bit more rest and you'll be okay. The invalid looked surprised, then doubtfully at his wife, who quickly stooped and kissed him. Jack's right, Mr. C. You get some more sleep so you'll get strong quicker. Dutifully he closed his eyes, and immediately his regular breathing told the three he was asleep once more. Quietly, Jack drew the others out of the bunk room and closed the door. Then his eyes shone and he grabbed his mother and danced her about, while John tried to get into the act. She's almost well, she's almost well, Jack chanted. John yelled in honest praise. You did a grand job, Owl! But his voice broke into a boyish treble with the excitement. After several minutes of jubilation, John went back into the control room and began figuring their course to Planet 3. He turned on the receiver and pointed the directional antenna. Soon, the broadcast of their solar signal came in. This one about the sun had him most worried, but he could read it clearly. This solar system was first discovered and charted by Tad Carver of Terra on 14th January, 2136. It has been named Carveria, and the five planets and seven satellites are being charted and named. Details will be filed with the Terran Colonial Board. Finally, John finished his astrogation, then went back into the living quarters. Ready to set course to three, folks. Strap down while I change course. How long will it take? Just under a couple of days at two G's. Ouch! Do we have to go that fast? Jack complained. You want to get there, don't you? John turned away indifferently, while Mrs. Carver smiled at Jack and shrugged. During the balance of that day, John stayed in the control room. When either of the others looked in, he was studying intently. Right after breakfast the next morning, he put in a long session at the computer and his drawing board. Then after lunch, went into the storeroom. After a while, he came out with his arms filled with wires, cells, relays, and other oddments, which he carried into the control room. The others, busy with their own work and chores, paid no special attention to what John was doing. Seeing him busy like this had become so commonplace, they seldom bothered even asking what he was doing when he did not volunteer the information. But as they approached Planet 3 early the following morning, under negative acceleration, all three were in the control room, peering intently into the visiplates. What would they find there? Would there be people of some sort? Cities? Jungles? Deserts? Ice fields? 
all three minds were busy with such conjectures as they came closer in. Their instruments had already told them three possessed an atmosphere containing water vapor, so they knew it could not be entirely untenable unless the air contained poisonous gases. But what real conditions they would discover, there remained to be seen. They had already found, charted, and photographed the two small moons that circled the planet. One of these was fairly large, about 900 miles in diameter, and the other much smaller, about 150. Three, itself, was about 5,000 miles through. There are clouds down there, Jack called suddenly as they approached ever nearer at constantly decreasing speed. Yes, I see them. And there's a big ocean. Their mother was equally excited. Three is only about 30 million further away than two, although on the opposite side of the sun right now. So there shouldn't be too much difference, except three will be colder, John stated. We're about a hundred miles up now, so I'm throwing us into a descending spiral. There's a big mountain range, and some of the peaks are snow-covered, Jack called out a few minutes later. I see them. We're down to about twenty miles now, and I'm setting a criss-cross orbit for two or three revolutions to get a better view and take our first pictures. Mom, if you can tear yourself away, I'm hungry. She stepped back from the screen, laughing. You're always hungry. Then she glanced at her wrist chronum and gasped in dismay. No wonder. It's over an hour past lunchtime. We'll yell if anything especially interesting shows up, Jack called as she was leaving. By circling the planet from east to west, they kept to the daylight side most of the time, and as the hours passed, they were able to get most of their pictures and reports on the geography, climate, and other conditions. Their spectral analyzer showed considerable mineral deposits in many of the places over which they passed. They saw plenty of vegetation, and John exclaimed about its coloring. Must be fall here, Jack explained. Unless, of course, those plants don't contain chlorophyll, which I doubt. But nowhere did they see anything that looked like the works of intelligent beings. Like Planet Two, there was no sign of people anywhere. When they became so tired they could no longer keep awake, John set the ship into a higher, safer orbit, and they all went to bed. Their father had awakened only once during the day, and then only for a few minutes. Nor had his wife allowed him to talk, greatly as the boys, especially, desired it. After breakfast the next morning, John maneuvered the ship down closer to the surface, and they completed exploring the planet, taking their pictures and recordings. Jack made tests and reported the atmosphere not poisonous, although so scant they would have to wear suits most of the time when outdoors. It's lots better than Mars, but not near as dense as Terra or two back there, he told John. Temps below freezing, but I imagine it'll get warmer when the sun's nearer noon here. Humans can adapt themselves to living here, then. John's voice was joyful. They've already colonized planets worse than this, as far as temperature and air are concerned. Yes, the human animal seems to be marvelously adaptable to almost any conditions not actually poisonous, Jack said admiringly. There's even a colony of people from the high Andes of Suomar living on Mars now, without domes. They could transport those Andean Indians to Mars direct because they were used to living in the rarefied atmosphere of the high mountains, eh? That's right. Those Indians would have suffocated at sea level back on Terra. Indeed, they seldom went down the mountains below 10,000 feet because of the discomfort. On Mars, they had some difficulty at first, but I understand the second generation born there are perfectly at home. John's blue eyes had been watching his detectors, even while his ears had been listening to Jack's explanations. So far, he had not discovered any of that strange fuel metal, if it was fuel, they had found on two. He spoke of this now to his brother. 
Wonder if those people didn't leave any caches here on three, or what? Maybe they didn't like cold weather, Jack grinned. More likely, though, either we haven't come close enough to detect it, or else they may only have made a cache on one planet in a system. That's probably it. I've been watching for it all the way in, and Annie didn't chirp at all. Well, do we land and see what the joint is like? Don't know about you, Chubby, but I sure want to. How about closer to the equator? Ought to be warmer there and more comfortable. I want to study that plant life. Okay by me, if you don't try to load the boat with your specimens, John laughed, and Jack joined in sheepishly. I promise not to go hog wild like I did last time. Going to land, Mom. Strap down, John called into the intercom. Jack reached for the sheet of landing instructions, but John shook his head. Don't think we'll need those. Tighten your belt. Here we go. Hey, what gives? Jack's eyes widened as he saw his brother throw in one switch and then take his hands off the controls, although his eyes were alertly watching his many dials and lights, and his body was tensely ready for emergencies. John did not answer, and Jack watched in the plate as the ground below appeared to rush closer each second. It almost seemed to him they were not slowing as fast as were usual on landings, but he was not unduly worried. He trusted John to know what he was doing, even if he didn't. But apparently John was not satisfied, for when the ship was only a few hundred yards above ground, he suddenly worked frantically at his controls, and the nose of the little yacht came up sharply, and she zoomed into the upper air with a push from her stern tubes. Thirty-some miles up, John set the ship into a circular orbit, then got out of his pilot's seat and began tinkering with some of the controls. "'What's wrong?' Jack asked. "'How come you went down without following the manual, and then came up again?' But John was tight-lipped and uncommunicative. Their mother's voice came over the intercom, asking why they had not landed, and John answered her question. "'Just a slight miscalculation of height, Mom, so I came up to try again,' he answered. "'Stay strapped down. I'll be going down again in a minute.' Soon he was back in his seat, scanning his various instruments. Then again Jack saw him throw that one switch. Once more the little ship began settling toward the ground beneath, without any handling of the controls. This time the landing was smooth, soft, and even. Still without any move by John, Jack could feel the various generators and engines stop, the landing props go down, and finally the board show a clear green neutral condition. How, how come? Jack gasped and this time John chose to answer. Just rigged up a series of photoelectric cells and relays, so now all I have to do is throw one switch and it takes care of all the little details of landing, just as this other one does of takeoffs. John tried to make it sound like an offhand comment. My height to descent speed ratio was off a bit, and that was what I had to fix. But, but that's something brand new, isn't it? I've never heard of such a thing before. Jack could still hardly believe what he had just witnessed. Oh, it wasn't so much a much. John looked down as he guessed that his brother would soon realize what a remarkable thing he had done. Boy, you're good! Jack applauded, and as their mother came into the control room, he almost shouted, John's gone and landed so we could go out a bit and make a fuller report in our log, Jack cut in sharply, with a warning look at his senior. How's Pop? Been moving about some, although he hasn't wakened fully yet today. His breathing is much easier. He still makes noises, but... Then he always did sort of snore when he slept. The boys went with her into the bunk room to look at their father before they started outside. There was a flush of color on his skin, although it was paler than its usual state. When Jack examined the side of his patient's head, he could see that it was practically healed. Also, the broken leg seemed in fine shape, as seen through the clear plastic of the cast. He'll be waking up for good any day now, I'm sure, 
he said thankfully. Gosh, I hope so, John said. I feel like a fish out of water without my pop. You seem to be doing fine, anyway, his mother cheered him. And so is Jack, she hastened to add, fearful her elder son might think her prejudiced. The boys went out to get ready for their outside trip. What's the big idea not letting me tell Mom about your new dinkus for landings and takeoffs? Jack railed. Ah, oh, she wouldn't understand it, and it'd worry her for fear it wouldn't work. John was clearly uncomfortable about the praise he could not help seeing in his brother's eyes. I'll tell Pop when he wakes up. Come on, I'll race you into our suits. The boys donned their space suits and examined each other to make sure they were tight. They saw to it that their guns and bandoliers were fully loaded, that they had with them what tools and other equipment they felt might be needed. Then they opened the locked doors and went outside. They started off in a predetermined direction, having made plans to go about five miles. Then they would swing in a circle around the ship. If they saw anything they thought exceptionally interesting, they would make short side trips, and if necessary, complete their circle on another day. In any event, they had promised their mother to be back by dark. The first leg of their journey was completed without any excitement, although Jack was continually finding new plants he wanted to collect for a future study. Nix, Owl, not this trip, John kept protesting. You promised, remember? Oh, all right, Killjoy. But there's so much here I want to find out about. Yes, so much you couldn't even make a dent of it in a lifetime. Want us to leave you behind to do it? You just try that and I'll knock your teeth loose. You and what platoon of space marines? John jeered good-naturedly, knowing that with his greater size and strength, Jack could not make good his threat, even if he really wanted to. Bickering in more or less friendly fashion, they covered their first five miles, then turned to the left and started circling. About a mile of this, they entered a fairly large wood. The trees here were so strange, the boys looked about them with a growing excitement. Unconsciously, they drew closer together, and finally John voiced what was in both their minds. I'm beginning to get scared, Jack. Ought we to keep trying to go this way? I'm not sure, said Jack slowly. I'm getting a feeling there's something here that seems to be unfriendly, perhaps dangerous. But there isn't a thing we can see, not even animal life. Maybe that's only because this forest is so unlike either those on terror or the ones on two. But John gripped his rifle more tightly, and his thumb unlocked the safety catch. The two boys finally came to a dead halt in a small clearing perhaps a hundred feet in diameter, and examined more closely the few trees and bushes about them. The ground on which they were now standing was bare and sandy, although beneath the trees it had been more like black loam. This sand must be why there's practically no vegetation here, Jack said. He dug into the ground a bit, and found it to be sand as deep as he went. Rising, he looked even more closely at the trees about the edge of the clearing, not one of them was the straight, slim type with which they were familiar. These were ungainly and appeared stunted, although many were actually close to thirty feet tall. Even so, they looked too large in diameter for their height. None of them had more than five or six twigless, leafless limbs, and those were almost as large in diameter as the trunks from which they grew. These branches twisted and curved, although in most cases the curve was upward, so that the leafless limbs often ended at a higher point than the main trunk of the tree. Suddenly, Jack began laughing, but with a high-pitched, mirthless laughter. As John looked at him in surprise, the elder tried to calm himself. I know what makes them look so scary, he finally said between gasps. It's that weird look. But remember those pictures we've seen of the Zona and New Mex deserts in Norama back home? Remember the Joshua trees growing there? They're as alien-looking as anything on Terra, and these look something like them. John, too, began grinning as remembrance came. 
must let ourselves get scared over nothing, didn't we? Come on, let's travel. And he started forward. Yet the strangeness persisted, and before the boys had passed through the fringe of those tortured trees on the other side of that wood, they started to get that queasy feeling again, in spite of their realization of what caused it. They began going more slowly, cautiously, ready for a quick turn and run, yet both inwardly hating themselves for the fear, and each determined not to let the other know he was afraid. But it was with a distinct sense of relief that they saw the end of that forest ahead of them. Unconsciously they hurried their steps until they were almost trotting. For the balance of their trip, John was strangely acquiescent, as Jack became more and more engrossed in the strange plant life of this world three. He knew that this was Jack's dish, and he was perfectly willing to defer to the elder's knowledge and desire to learn. His main concern was to keep his brother from overloading himself with specimens, or from loitering too much. Jack had been especially studying the soil here, John noticed, and finally he asked about it. Notice one peculiar thing about this planet? What's on your mind? The total absence, as far as we've seen, of any sort or type of protoplasmic life, Jack reported. Hey, that's right, although I hadn't thought of it before. Our examination from the air, I remember now, showed no animals, birds, or people. Plenty of vegetation, though. Yes, it has everything in that line. I wonder, though. He paused, and he grew thoughtful. Wonder what? How those plants can grow, without any worms or ants or anything, to loosen and irrigate the soil. And no animals or birds to make fertilizers. Or bees or butterflies or anything to carry pollen. John shrugged. Who wouldn't have the foggiest? That's your line, not mine. But they must do it some way. There's sure lots of plant life here. But Jack was still shaking his head in puzzlement as they finally returned to the ship. It was quite dark outside when the boys went into the control room after dinner. John went over to the window ports, while Jack began working with his plant specimens. Jack, come here, John called after a moment or two. The elder, prompted by the curious urgency in his brother's voice, left his specimens and ran to the other side. What are those things? Jack stared through the port in amazement. Outside, drifting across the clearing, were nearly a dozen large, spherical things like ghostly white balloons. They must have been almost a yard in diameter and by straining their eyes, the boys could see tentacles or tendrils of some sort depending from the bottom surfaces. Gosh, never saw anything like those. Let's go out and see what they are. Let's not and say we did, John retorted. I want to find out more about them first. He went over to the control panel and switched on the searchlight, as well as the pilot's visiscreen. Looking into the latter, he was able to direct the light so it shone on a couple of the floating balls. Jack was studying the plants or so he still believed them to be, more carefully, now that they were lighted. But after a moment, he yelped excitedly, Hey, they're deflating! Must be the light does it! John was watching them in his screen. Yes, I see now. What causes it? I don't know, Jack answered sadly and absently. But I sure want to know. How about covering me while I go out and see if I can get one? Well, maybe in your suit you'll be safe. Once suited up, Jack went outside and across the short distance to where the balls seemed to be slightly closer together. He tried first one way, and then another to catch one, but at his lightest touch they burst and deflated. After several unsuccessful attempts, though, he called excitedly through his suit sender. John, you read me? Coming through. I'm going to try fanning one toward the air analyzer. I want to see if we can get an idea of what's inside. I've got a screwy hunch. Right. 
I'll switch the light away from them up into the air. Carefully, Jack herded one of the globes near the ship, and was finally successful in getting it close to the hull vent of the air analyzer. When it was almost touching the ship's side, he reached out and touched it, and it promptly broke. Get anything? he yelled. Yes, guess of some sort. Taking the reading now. It seems to be mostly nitrogen. Ah, that's it then. I'm coming in. When Jack was back inside, John helped him remove his helmet, then demanded curiously, What's it all about, Owl? I'm not positive, of course, but I bet those things take the place of bees for pollinating, and also furnish the fertilizer for the ground when they burst and their nitrogen gets into the soil some way. End of chapter 7 Recording by Todd